Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have two esteemed guests on our podcast, Dr. Roxana Sasu and Dr. Matt Fleischman. They're experts in the field of neurofeedback, and today we talk about neurofeedback as an integrative approach to health. Roxana Sasu received her MD in Romania in 1999. She joined the clinical staff at the EEG Institute in California in 2008. She divides her time between clinical work using neurofeedback in her private practice, teaching professional training courses in the U.S. and in Europe, and mentoring clinicians interested in advancing their practical skills in this method. She also takes part in ongoing research and data collection for improving the efficacy of neurofeedback. She's a member of the advisory board and director of clinical supervision at the Neurofeedback Institute in Romania. She authored two chapters in the book, Restoring the Brain, Neurofeedback as an Integrative Approach to Health, where she discusses clinical aspects related to the use of neurofeedback in targeting symptoms associated with ADD and ADHD, respectively behavioral, developmental, and emotional dysregulations in the younger population. Dr. Fleischman is a licensed psychologist with 35 years experience with neurofeedback. He is a co-director of the Neurofeedback Advocacy Project, whose mission is to implement neurofeedback within our existing healthcare system with particular concern for agencies working with the underserved. He is also the developer of the Results Tracking System, an online HIPAA compliant method for collecting and displaying real time, real world, meaningful results in mental health care. Welcome, Roxana and Matt. Thank you. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about neurofeedback, and you're going to enlighten me about the process of neurofeedback and how it's done and maybe who, the type of people it could help. Okay. Go ahead, Roxanne. So maybe we should just discuss a little bit about neurofeedback and what it is. What I usually describe it as is brain exercise. It's very much like going to the gym, but instead of you being on a treadmill, it's your brain doing the workout. It all happens on a subconscious level. It's a tool that relies on the concept of neuroplasticity. And that is basically the brain's ability to learn from experience. So we are facilitating a process in which the brain can see itself at work and can learn how to self-correct, which then improves self-regulation and specific and overall function. Who is it for? Really, anybody can benefit from a better brain, from better brain function. So there's no limit to whom it's it's geared towards. It works really well with any age. It helps a variety of symptoms. Anything really that has to do with the brain, that's what we can do. We can help the brain work better. I think I would look at it maybe presented as currently we have two types of interventions. The pharmacological interventions intervene within the chemistry of the brain. And then almost all psychotherapies are at some level trying to get people to think about or reevaluate or respond differently to experiences that they're having. They're all run through a cognitive framework, some more explicitly than others. And within that, you also now have a growing group of, you know, mindfulness and relaxation and meditation type approaches. So neurofeedback comes in 
at a different level. It comes in at the brain's own self-regulation of itself. And it was discovered 50 years ago. It was actually discovered with cats. Don't ask me. It's a great story, but we won't do it here. But basically, that you could train a cat's brain and then a person's brain to regulate itself better with feedback of its own activity. And currently, the most common, well, how do you do that is if somebody is watching, let's say they can watch a movie or a Netflix or a, a YouTube video or play a video game, and we embed the feedback in what the activity is. So if they're watching a movie, when the brain is in a desired range, the picture gets bigger. When it gets into a less desired range, the picture shrinks. And you can see this, but it makes no sense to the conscious mind. But the brain itself starts to modify its own activity to get a bigger picture, faster race car, whatever you want. What's happening, and this is now where brain research is coming out, you know, fMRI studies is showing that the network activity, the firing of trillions of cells, starts to become more coherent and better organized. And the feeling is, for the client, is we all have better days and worse days, days when we're sharper, less sharp, days when we tend to be more overreactive, days when we tend to be calmer, is that the person starts to experience better days on top of better days. So while we don't have, we don't say we have a brain pattern to treat PTSD, though maybe some people would say they do. What we have is that if we treat the brain towards better self-regulation, the brain itself handles trauma better. And in the first place, People just feel better. They sleep better, focus better, have better mood, better energy. But if you're in psychotherapy or you're on medications, you're now working on a better regulated brain. So in psychotherapy, you have people who are more available. And oftentimes medications, we're looking for more medications and more medications to get hold of something else because something else is dysregulated. We bring a better regulated brain so that medications can be more effective or the doses can be lower to achieve the effect. It's bizarre until you try it. Well, so that's why I think it would be good to kind of maybe think about a hypothetical case, right? And so thinking about what would you say would be a good case to talk about depression, anxiety, PTSD, what do you think would be kind of a good teaching case? Complicated anxiety disorders would be a, a great one. And what do you mean by complicated? Trauma history, perhaps a family history of anxiety, that they're also going through COVID or <laughs> so they're more limited in their access to getting around to doing things and may also have a complication like a pain disorder. Because what we're finding is most people don't come in with a single, if you look at it, they don't come in with a single presenting concern. They may come in with a presenting concern, but when you do a thorough intake, what you see is depression, pain, tension problems, focus problems, sleep problems. Okay, so let's maybe think about, I think about a kind of a hybrid of a bunch of different types of people I see, but very typical case, someone who has history of anxiety, pretty mild episodes throughout their lives, maybe their middle age, 
And during this time of COVID, a lot more stressors are placed on them and the anxiety symptoms really are coming out to the point where it's affecting their functioning. It makes them uncomfortable, sometimes some panic attacks and maybe some mild depression. Mm -hmm. And so starting from there, maybe thinking about this person isn't on medication, right? But they're trying to figure out how they can help themselves feel better. And so I guess the first question is, everyone kind of thinks about, okay, therapy as the traditional talk therapy, right? So if I was that person looking for some relief of my anxiety symptoms, how would I think about biofeedback versus maybe we could sprinkle in the idea of possible medications versus just talk therapy? So how, and let's kind of decide to do biofeedback and we can kind of go through that. So maybe think about kind of that decision of even starting. Well, I think the first thing to consider is the fact that neurofeedback is non-invasive. And I think that is really, really important because medication, you put something in your system, you don't know how your system is going to respond. And some people do get hooked on medication, which is terrible, right? Then you have another set of symptoms and issues that you need to address. I think neurofeedback is the natural choice and it's a good combination. It's, it's good in combination with therapy for the reason that Matt described earlier, making the brain more available for discussion, making it easier for the person to bring to awareness the issues that they're actually dealing with. And then if you have a choice, if you want to go into therapy, sure, try therapy first if that's what you want. But neurofeedback will help the brain change before the conscious mind gets to do the work that it needs to do. I think the order would be reversed and would be more successful. Got it. So I walk into your office, right? And so what's the next step? The next step would be an assessment. And we actually spend quite some time trying to really understand the dysregulations the client is coming in with the specificity of the symptoms and not just the symptoms, but the manifestations of those symptoms, right? Anxiety can be many things. It can be physical, it can be emotional, it can be mental. And then you also mentioned panic attacks. From where I stand with neurofeedback, I need to map these different manifestations to certain areas in the brain that are in charge of that specific function. And then I can design a treatment plan that's individualized to this client's needs. The assessment also includes some testing that we're doing, so a measurement of brain performance, which is used as a baseline, and we compare that to a second test that they'll take after a certain amount of training. And then during that assessment, once we gathered all that information, we're going to actually start implementing the plan, the treatment plan. And so we're going to do a session and try and, and calm that brain down with all the things that we think we need to do within that first session. And that's how the process starts. Well, just that the, in the way I would work is after we got the assessment, I'd work with the client and say, okay, let's come up with five to eight things that you can observe on a daily basis about yourself. So they might just say anxiety, or they might say that my mind never quiets. They might say that I overreact to any setback. They might add, I'm constantly self-criticizing. They might add, I don't sleep through the night or I wake too easily. So we pick these things and then I just simply say, okay, let's rate these on a 
what's a good week like for you? What's a bad week like for you? And what's a usual week for each of these symptoms on a zero to 10 scale? At every session when they come in, I ask them to rate how it's been going and to talk about the events surrounding that. And what I expect with each session is that those scores start to drop. And I do now a lot of training in the field of eight people to use this. And we're getting about a 35% reduction in client-selected, client-rated concerns within 20 sessions. And if they go beyond that, you know, there's no fixed length. But if they were to go out to 40 sessions, we're getting close to a 50% reduction in clients with very high rates of mental distress. So they're reporting these significant things happening. At the same time, as people don't feel so bad, now you can talk about the things like, what would you be doing in your life that you can't do because your symptoms get in the way? Or are there things in your life that you have to deal with? You know, if you have a nail in your shoe, at some point you have to pull the nail out. We don't want you just to feel better with a nail in your shoe type thing. So, What is the process then? So what are the exercises? How does it actually move forward, I guess, in, in terms okay. of what you do in session? We paste electrodes to your head. Four, sometimes five. It is absolutely non-invasive. They're just EEG electrodes, expensive EEG electrodes, but they are electrodes. We paste them on your head in very specific places. Electrodes are just picking up brain waves. They go through an amplifier. The amplifier then leads to a computer where the therapist, based on some assessment issues, sets up a protocol that they can change. You're constantly changing it as you go along. That then feeds back through the computer to the client picks, patient picks of, do you want to watch video? You want to watch a movie, play a video game? We have exciting video games and we have very calming video games. Um, I've had trained kids to watch Minecraft videos, put me to sleep, but the kids loved them. And I've trained more and more people with Big Bang Theory, the TV show that was real popular. So I probably have a thousand hours watching Big Bang Theory. Basically, they sit in the chair. Periodically, we ask them, how are they feeling? If the settings are not optimal, we can make people uncomfortable. And when they tell us that, like my eyes are getting dry or I'm getting a headache, that tells us how to adjust the protocol in known ways. That's what the training is about, to relieve those adverse effects, if you will. And that's a session. Interspersed it with talk. Sometimes, you know, you're finished, you talk. People come in at the outset, you talk. Um, and whatever modality of skill you have or whatever modality of therapy, you integrate that in. A lot of times early on with some clients, it's mostly just neurofeedback. But then later on, as they're starting to feel better, as you know, as Roxana was saying, then it slides over to uh, talk therapy. So it seems like in the beginning, at least, a more passive process in kind of in terms of what the patient or client needs to do. Yes. In fact, we tell people don't do anything. Just pick something you want to watch and do it and don't try and make it better. We actually have studies that show that some of the poorer outcomes in neurofeedback is when people were told to do things like relax or focus. And that's because, you know, everybody is told to everybody with anxiety disorder, relax. If they could have, they would have. It gets in the way and just let the brain figure it out. It's really, the new term now is endogenous, which means it's actually totally healing within 
to which the brain picks up something out of the signal. And that's the really, we know some of what works. The fMRI stuff shows you see the difference in the brain within 30 minutes. It is definitely not a placebo. I can make you really sick and really hurt doing it wrong. But, you know, we're learning about the brain and we probably know as much about how neurofeedback works as we really know about how psychotherapy works or psychopharmacology. We are, we're learning as we go in a field. Different disorders, there are different placements of the electrodes and different intensities is basically the bottom, bottom line of... That's reasonably fair, yeah. Attention disorders, for example, we know are in the frontal lobes. So we're going to put eventually electrodes on the frontal lobes, where a lot of disorders of, let's say, trauma-related chronic stress are the back right part of the brain and the right front of the part of the brain where we're going to go and may never go to the left side because it can be contraindicated. The client's involvement is there to a certain degree because, yes, they show up for sessions and they sit in a comfortable chair and they have the electrodes on their head. They don't need to make anything happen. And just as Matt said, the more they try, the less it kind of works because the conscious mind interferes. But they do have a big job. And that job is to report changes in symptoms. And that's crucial for the clinician in order to know how to individualize and adjust the training protocol so that we get the better results. So we're coming together, we're looking at that brain, client and clinician, and then we're trying to figure out best ways to help it. And the clinician without the client's input can't really come up with the right protocol because we don't feel what they feel. We don't know what they feel. And what is the rate of improvement that you would expect in a typical case that kind of goes the way that you would expect it to go? Well, like I said, we're seeing the you know, 30%, 35% improvement within 20 sessions as an average, 45%. And this is a pretty, we're using very severely impaired people because that's some of the work I'm doing now. So it's pretty dramatic. Also, it's surprisingly, it's lasting. In other words, because it's a training process, once the brain regulates itself better, it tends to stay better regulated. It can be set back. But even in the case of, say, somebody has a subsequent head injury, and you know we've worked with head injuries quite well, you can train the brain back um, into these positions. I mean, it's surprisingly powerful and surprisingly effective. But the range of improvement, if we do enough sessions on autistic people, we can get dramatic improvement. But in most cases, if you know what you're looking at, you can say, gee, this person's still on the spectrum but they're happier, they work better, they don't have the extreme blow-ups. And with people with anxiety disorders, which is probably an area where we have our strongest impact, I would say, is people can actually say, I don't want to use the word cured, but I've never felt so well and done so well in my life in treating anxiety disorders. Matt, you had brought up ADD, and I'm actually very curious, and I have a very a simple question that I don't know the answer to. First is, I don't see children myself, but I see adults with ADD and sometimes even adults aren't interested in medication. They are really interested in other techniques and modalities to help their symptoms. And, you know, especially 
for parents with young children, they want to think about every other option before they consider medication for ADD. And I've heard of use of biofeedback and neurofeedback for ADD. So one question is the difference between the two. And then also what you think of treatment for ADD. Is it something that's, you know, seems like a pretty popular use for treatment of ADD? Mm-hmm. Let me just take the distinction between neurofeedback and biofeedback. And then simply biofeedback is largely built around inducing relaxation, and it's a much more conscious process. So the person will watch a temperature or a thermometer and told to relax or think pleasant thoughts and make them aware, notice that the thermometer is telling them that their hands are warming up, they're getting calmer. Because a lot of people are just not aware of how tense they are all the time. Neurofeedback started out just as a spinoff of biofeedback, but now that it's moved into an unconscious process, we still see that's our historical foundation. But I personally see it compatible. People combine biofeedback and neurofeedback, but what we're doing, I think, is moved far enough away that you would say it's a well-developed branch that's moved pretty far from its original roots. In terms of treatment, you know, medication is immediate. The stimulants work within about 20 minutes of taking the pill. Neurofeedback is a training process, and we can do neurofeedback for people on medication to work back off of it. So in my practice, I had a lot of clients on medication. I had a lot of clients who were not on medication. One issue in ADD is there is no protocol in neurofeedback that makes a kid want to do their homework. So you are at that point also needing to work with the parent and the school to make sure that, you know, a boring teacher, I I often thought of ADD as exciting teacher deficit disorder. So you have to look at the larger picture, but that's the same, I think, in psychopharmacology too. Giving medication into a disrupted family system often does not result in a very good improvement. So it's a tool. And if people can do it or come back, or that child has not succeeded on medication or created severe side effects, the neurofeedback becomes a real promising tool. On the other hand, if people want something today, medications are much more immediate. Roxana, would you add anything to that? Well, I think as any label, ADD is a complicated one as well. And what we see in clinical practice, I think more is the complicated subtype, as we call it, which has a little bit of a different presentation in that it comes in with a lot of maybe trauma, pre-existing attachment issues, uh, emotional behavioral issues that make it appear as if the brain is not paying attention, is not having good executive function, when in fact, everything that's going on is the brain is in fight or flight mode, trying to survive, trying to regulate attachments and feeling safe and secure in the world. Therefore, you know, with a brain that has limited resources, what the teacher says is not going to be important. Survival will be much more important. So oftentimes the context of trauma changes the way we approach training. And I tend to see in my practice more this complicated subtype than this straightforward ADD person who benefits from medication and we usually don't hear from unless they don't tolerate medication or they really don't want to be on it. I'll add one other thing with the ADD population, probably as common occurring symptom as the inattention. 
is sleep disorders. And probably the thing we get the fastest, most consistent response with is sleep problems. And it's also, most kids cannot tell you about their attention issues, but they can tell you whether they can fall asleep. And a lot of kids with ADD will tell you, I can lay in bed and I'll just lay there and lay there and not fall asleep. But now suddenly they're falling asleep. So I often wonder, are we treating attention or are we by treating the underlying sleep disorder? And that's also becoming more prominent now in the medical news is the occurrence of sleep disorders in children. And that's also an issue somewhat with medications because sometimes they can exacerbate those. So yeah, and you're, if you, you're not treating the actual cause, you're just maybe making it worse. And then the other thing is thinking about medication, it only works when you take it, right? Yep. And so this idea of a more lasting effect could be kind of attractive to people, especially yep. parents of children or people who just don't like being on stimulants. I mean, it, it, there are negatives to being on these medications long-term as well. For sure. What about weight loss? I'm curious about weight loss. Is this ever used for weight loss? I wouldn't say that people come in to see us for the specific reason. It comes up when we do the intake and we learn about all the different things that they would like to change or that they struggle with. And I think weight loss is one thing, but we're looking at oftentimes much bigger problems like awareness and self-soothing and using food to calm down using food to just self-regulate when you're stressed out. Oftentimes that context means to us, we just need to calm the brain down and allow it to be more aware. And with a little bit of help, the brain can actually regulate. Appetite is one of the things that responds just like sleep really quickly to the training. And, you know, we can make it worse. We can make it better knowing what we're looking for and helping the brain go in the right direction by just, allowing it to see itself oftentimes is a big first step towards the desired outcome, better regulation of appetite, but then weight loss, not on its own, but maybe part of a bigger clinical picture, high blood pressure, diabetes, just learning how to, to function better. And of course, there's this part that we need to do as well, educating clients on how they can help themselves outside of the training, you know, what other things they could do, a little bit of help with nutrition, you know, just giving them some principles there. So it's not just neurofeedback, but absolutely, this is something, this is a tool to consider. Right. Add a parallel to substance abuse. There's a couple of good studies have shown that when people go into substance abuse treatment, you have a high rate of premature termination. And that is because when you take away people's drug of choice, you now uncover all of the other dynamics and emotional dynamics that I think leads a lot of people in the healthcare field to view substance abuse as self-medication. Self-medication that's now gotten way out of hand would be a view. What they found in treatment programs that added a neurofeedback component that the rates of premature termination were much lower. Now, when you went three years later and went back and asked these people, what did they think of their drug and alcohol treatment? The ones who finished the program, oh, it was great. I really liked the counseling. The AA was superb. The family stuff was excellent. What about the neurofeedback? 
oh yeah, that was good too. They don't think of it as much as the other. But of the group that had the neurofeedback had a 15% premature termination rate, and the other group had a 60% premature termination. So it's not neurofeedback that kept them sober. It's neurofeedback that allowed them to continue in the treatment. And if you look at weight loss, particularly complex people who've really struggled over a long time, neurofeedback is not going to get them thin. It's going to be all the other programs that you're using, but the likelihood sometimes of their staying in this is lower. And this also comes back, I think people are now familiar with the ACEs study, which is adverse childhood events and long-term consequences. And that came out of weight loss study at Kaiser Permanente that looked at a group, that's what started a large group of, I think all women, predominantly women, who had successfully lost weight under Kaiser Permanente physician direction, but all regained it, or most of them did. And then they went and interviewed those who had regained, and then they started to find the relationship between early childhood abuse and that gaining weight and being large was a protective mechanism. So this led to a whole new, much more sophisticated approach to things. And I think that that's where we get back to lifestyle, Mental health, physical health, we don't pull them apart the way we used to. And I think we're going to get better outcomes like that. Well, so I, I also, I've been talking for a while. I, I, I think we probably need to wrap up pretty soon. But what I ask often in these interviews in the end, but maybe I should ask in the beginning, is who wouldn't you want to use this for? Who would maybe think maybe this isn't a good idea to use this type of modality for them? Can you think of anybody? I think... As long as the person wants to be part of the process, really anybody can can be part of it. We struggle. I find that it's it's much harder to work with someone who does not want to get well, who does, you know, the adolescent being dragged into my office by the mom because, oh, he needs help. He's doing everything wrong. And then that, that person, that child, he doesn't think he has a problem or even if he does, he doesn't want to admit it. And it's, it's a very difficult situation to be in, how do you help someone who doesn't want it, who doesn't acknowledge that there's a problem that needs to to need some help, maybe. So I think wanting to be part of the process, wanting to heal is the first step. And that's really the only requirement, whether they're on medication or not, whether they've been doing other uh, other interventions, it doesn't really matter. They just need to bring their brain and their feedback and tell us how they feel. That's it. I was also thinking, I mean, we encounter resistance all the time, right? In our treatment of people who with various mental issues or various kind of depression, anxiety, all those things. But I would also think since it is an unconscious process, there could be some effect with an adolescent, say, who's just not interested. I mean, you would assume there could be some potential benefit, even if they're not. There always is. (laughs) The problem is they're not going to report. Yeah. And so the clinician is faced with the problem of trying to make clinical decisions that are not based on the client's input. And that's not exactly how we work. I would suggest a more optimistic view, partly because my interest in the last four years has been implementing this with underserved and hard to serve populations. And so we have put this into agencies that are often dealing with people who are, not all, but often coerced into treatment. We've done this with a program that offered support to felons 
released back into the community. We also put this into a forensics unit, behavioral health department, and we put this into a group, almost all they serve low-income people. And these are not often very verbal people. They're often wary of systems. They're not often open to disclosure. And we put this in, and our results have been just as good as when we put them into middle-class, more psychologically sophisticated people. And in some ways, what people are reporting and their colleagues are reporting is, what are you doing to these people? Suddenly they come to group therapy and they're talking. They never talk for two years. So we can work as, as early as like two years with autistic children. You put them on their mother's lap, you wrap the mother's arms around the child, you paste on the electrodes and you turn on the cartoon. And you have to rely on the report of the mother because that child will not tell you, but the mother can tell you. And um, we've worked, I haven't, but other people have worked with people in, you know, severe states of, uh, some more of the advanced peripheral workers with people in unconscious states. If you can get feedback to the body, to the brain, the brain makes use of it. Um, but I also take what Roxanne has said. It, there's no pleasure in working with an adolescent who comes in and lets you know every session how miserable they are to be there. But most of them after a couple sessions, I mean, all I got to do is watch video games or YouTube, okay, I'll please my mother by coming. And then they do get better. So it's bizarre. It's pretty open to who it can work with. I think it's probably time to wrap up, but I learned quite a bit about this. So I really appreciate you enlightening me and sharing your expertise. I'll make sure on the episode description, there's information about your practices as well as just, I think you also gave us general information for somebody who just wants to learn a bit more. But before we end, is there some parting words or anything that you wish we kind of had discussed to make sure that we don't forget anything really important here? There are some books that people may be interested. The Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps Score, which is a bestseller on the treatment of trauma. He has an entire chapter devoted to it. And if people wonder about evidence or research, I don't know how we get it, but there is currently over 2,400 peer-reviewed journals, journal articles on this. So this is also, and this is the difficulty, there's a great variety of neurofeedback treatments out there. Some of them are truly $99 off the internet devices. And then there's much more sophisticated. And I wish I could give better guidance, but look for people who are trained, have the appropriate credentials, and uh, ask around. That would be what I would add. Nothing here, nothing that comes to mind right now. I think we covered quite a bit. Yeah, we really did. I was, I kind of thought, how are we going to get this all in in this short period of time? <laughs> I have a much better understanding of it and I really appreciate learning more about it. Roxana, are there kind of specific cases you really like working with or? I really like working with anything. I look at every brain as an enigma and I play detective. I get to play detective, you know, figuring out what works for each person. I love working with autism and seeing that child becoming more aware and more loving towards the parent or finally saying the first word. I think that's one of the situations that moves me the most and motivates me the most. I also love working with veterans where, you know, the struggles are very real and very hidden from the world and we get to help them back to, to a more normal life 
and that's also very very satisfying i think and anything in between i don't i don't have a preference but any preferences for you madam since i asked Roxanne, i might as well ask you sure well i no longer see clients in my own personal private practice what i am focusing on is something called the neurofeedback advocacy project which is to facilitate the implement trial implementation and no risk implementation for agencies that work with underserved and hard to serve populations. And so if people want to contact me about that and the opportunity, I'd be glad to respond. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you both for the work you do and for taking part in this interview. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been Mind Stories with remote appointments in California and offices in downtown LA, Santa Monica, Hermosa Beach, Marina del Rey, Echo Park, and Santa Barbara. Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.